Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital media production all of all types. Uh, and our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. Uh, today, we have an old friend, uh, John Tatoulis. Uh, and John is uh, the founder of Sound Devices, one of the co-founders of Sound Devices, um, and has moved on to Hank's Craft and is now a CEO there. And he's going to be here to talk about... Um, the industry, what it took to, to build that up, uh, his journey, and answer your questions about, about this, the sound recording industry, manufacturing, as well as uh, just where he sees it going. So I uh, get your questions in. It's a really unique opportunity for us to have someone who has so much experience here to talk about those things. And so if you want to talk about supply chains, as well as audio and recording, uh, he's, he's the guy. So anyway, so stay tuned for that in the uh, in the second hour. All right, let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? Our first one comes from Simon Ray in Midlands in the United Kingdom. He says, where would you go to research and register a worldwide trademark in order to protect your brand name? Go ahead, Nigel. So I don't believe there is any way you can go to do this one single place. One of the challenges of a trademarking is that it's jurisdictional. So you really have to do it country by country. Now, there are a couple of additional things to know here. Obviously, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is, is the way to get the U.S. There's a thing called the Madrid Protocol, which helps a number of the European countries work together. But but it's really hard to go one place. This is why a patent and trademark attorneys make so much money, because they have systems and tools that allow them to do this. And if you are seriously looking to trademark a trademark around the world, uh, you should find an attorney that's good at this. But I would I would tell you, before you decide you want the worldwide Decide where in the world, world world you really want it. So uh, you may really not want all 200 countries or whatever the number of countries are, but I'm afraid there's not, as far as I remember, one single simple place to go. You go, John. The gentleman from Texas was very adroit in his coverage of this question. There is one site, WIPO, W-I-P-O dot, uh, dot I-N-T, that you can start there, but... I use professionals in, in the United States, USPTO.gov has a great search engine for, for the U.S. Good uh, uh, guy. Yeah, we've done a couple of these, and we use a, a firm called Seed IP. Uh, Russ Tarleton is our guy, and uh, he recently helped us. Uh, this is international as well. They're one of the best in the world. We've used them for several. We just landed uh, a couple months ago Studiomatic, which was uh, one of the uh, trademarks that we uh, picked up. And one of the things that I was just noticing when I was reading through the email is um, in order to protect it, you, you need to use the symbol. You need to do, uh, you need to have it in use for three years. If you don't for three years, then other people can come in. So one of the things about going through an attorney is that they'll send you these reminders. So in this email is like, hey, we're going to remind you on these dates. So sure, it can be simple to to push through uh, using some some basic apps um, or basic language th from a web page, but hiring professionals, if it's really important, uh, can save you in the long run because they'll protect you for the, the long haul and also register another other worldwide locations if if you deem that necessary but like nigel was saying it can be very expensive because you have to follow up and following up in 220 countries can be super expensive good courtney yeah i would start with the united states at uspto.gov uh, and there you can search <clears throat> apply for your own trademark and um, i've registered uh, several myself without having a lawyer and it is possible uh, it just takes a while and takes a little bit of money, but uh, it's a lot less than hiring a lawyer to do it. 
Next and week. once you start, and once you start in the United States, there are several other countries that respect U.S. trademarks. Then you got to find the ones that don't and try and register them there. And there, you might be uh, wise to hire an international attorney who's familiar with trademark and patent. Next question. Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona is up next. Uh, Mac Mini M2 or Mac Studio. When I do desired configurations of both, they come to within a $300 difference. Go ahead, John. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the benchmarks on this on this thing. And so, you know, the difference between the two is that giant fan in the, in the studio. So for thermal throttling, uh, I, I can't wait to see the benchmarks on between those two machines. There you go, Jeff. That is actually precisely what I was going to point out is the space and the attention they paid to the thermal and, and heat dissipation with that bigger box um, on the studio. So so exactly where you need to see. And, and in particular, if we're talking about the M1 Ultra that you can configure uh, in the studio. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, a bit more flexibility with the ports on the studio as well. So that's probably where I would go unless you have unique needs, like you need to stack a whole wall of them like Alex does in racks, and then obviously he can put more minis in there. Yeah, the problem is the, with the studio is exactly what Jeff just talked about, is that the studio does not fit comfortably into a rack mount. Like it is, it is just a little too high for two use. So you're going to kind of have a bunch of open space that, that's there if you start to try to rack them up. So you know, for the same space as two effective space as two as two studios the mini you could have six mac minis um so so you could have a lot of them in that same space for about the same price if you get a lower end one i do think that uh, exactly what was discussed here the sustained like a, a long compression photogrammetry 3d rendering all of those things the studio is going to do better because it's not it's going to keep that temperature much lower over a longer period of time so uh, i probably would not buy the high-end mac minis um, i think that they gave you that opportunity but as soon as i crested over three thousand dollars on a mac mini i'd probably start looking at a mac uh, a mac studio next question Next one comes to us from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe says, have mo modern head-worn mics improved the art of ventriloquism? Are there any reasons for a main speaker to not use a head-worn mic for either recording or public address clarity? And he's got a link there. He says it's examples of some talented dummies. I want to go see that. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, the good ones just cost a lot of money. So the smaller the mic capsule, the higher the self-noise. And so this one in particular that I'm wearing right now is a DPA 4066. You can kind of see it right there. It's one of the finest in the world, I would say, um, at about 600 bucks for this mic. It's uh, one that uh, has that, that clarity that on the low-end ones, like the $14 piles, you just won't hear some of the nuances that you'll get. So for the ventriloquism clip that um, Ross put up, I noticed that... Um, the gentleman was speaking into a handheld mic and the younger uh, female was using a headworn mic, but I did notice that she breathed into it. And so that's one of the downsides. So there's several, several downsides to these. One, they're not as full. You don't pick up as much low end. Two, the self noise. Three, there's uh, potential for somebody to, to blow peas or uh, especially ventriloquism. They're talking sideways uh, and hit the mic. And so she does hit the mic capsule and, and you can beat it up. Also, they're just expensive and delicate so they can get uh, abused and, and then they don't work when you need them to work. So handhelds are much more durable, of course. And so I think that's why they're more of the standard rather than head-worn. I'm sorry. Sorry, you, you, we lost you there for a second. Did I, I don't know if I lost it. Or, 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 yeah. I think um, we heard them all the way through, so it might be you, okay, Alex. It might be me. It was you, Alex. Oh, okay, well, I'm connected. Anyway, um, sorry about that. Not, uh, go ahead, Courtney. 
Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to improve your ventriloquism because if your lips move, your lips move. But if you have a head-worn mic and you have a little further back on the cheek, uh, when you're talking with your mouth open, it sounds a little more present than you're talking with your mouth closed. So it gives the dummy a little bit of sound of slightly being off to the side or, or off mic. And if you're going to be showing, if you're going to be doing a ventriloquist act with a visible uh, boom mic, you want to put one on the dummy too, just to sell it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, uh, that the other thing is that the head, head worn ones, we've kind of moved away from those for a lot of things because they, they have a higher tendency to have sibilance. So you hear a lot more of the S's and so on and so forth coming in. And I think that that'd probably be very problematic for a, a ventri- ventriloquist. The next question. Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida says, how do YouTube affiliate links work? I go ahead, Jeffrey. There's different ways that uh, YouTube affiliate link will work um, if I'm reading. Uh, but uh, basically what you have, uh, if you put a link into your description, like for instance, an Amazon link. Uh, so you would go to Amazon, you'd sign up for their affiliate program, and then uh, and then you'd get links that you would then put into your description there. Uh, another way to do that is to uh, sign up for something like Radikin or something like that, where you can you basically get a code in which you then tell people to go to the website and then enter the code. But most of them are, are tracking. Uh, inside the links that you put on your page, uh, and and if they're not, once again, you have a little code that you that you uh, go from there. So those are the two main ones that main ways to do any type of YouTube affiliate linking. But inside the video, other than that, YouTube has nothing to do with those types of links. And uh, and for our producers, uh, we're cutting through these questions very quickly. Uh, probably a lot of room here for you to throw in questions if you if you have them. Uh, this is, is going to be a good day. It's a great panel. Uh, next question. Greg Breckmeyer in Topping Virginia says, current recommendations for managing and presenting audience questions for an all-hands meeting. And he notes, I really like the voting feature in Mukana. I'll go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, you know, I haven't looked at the specific uh, software systems that let you do this. There are a ton uh, for this exact thing. So, But just a couple general recommendations from experience. Uh, or way back uh, in the day, I did a live event um, where people could tweet in questions and things like that. And so the one thing which most good systems have... But make sure you have moderation. You know, you have a moderator, a live moderator, before anyone can submit something that goes up on a projector or wall or something like that. Uh, but there are lots of systems for exactly that. Um, you know, Alex, of course, can talk about the voting. I, I would think in, in something like an all-hands meeting, you need a little bit more real-time interaction because likely the questions that might come in are relevant to what perhaps the speaker is talking about. So you need a quick way to get them in, but just moderated to do a quick check before they go up on the wall. You go, Jeffrey. Yeah, and when I see all hands meeting, I'm thinking to myself, this is a this is a work-related thing. Um, and if that's the case, then you probably don't want to have some sort of voting system on the questions because then there's going to be some people that are going to feel like they're going to be voted down by other people. I, I, I would definitely go with something that's more moderated uh, questions put into uh, one one area, one group of people that would then figure out what the questions are going to be asking uh, whoever you're, is is talking. Most likely a CEO in that case. 
Yeah, we've done a lot of all hands. <laughs> uh, I think the smallest ones are probably 30 to 50 people, and the largest ones have been almost a quarter million uh, people in a single all hands meeting. Um, the voting is almost absolutely necessary because you just can't get to you can't get to the, the number of the, the problem is is you don't know how many people want to answer that question. <laughs> you know, so so you have a, the issue that you end up with is you want when people vote on questions like they do here in Makana and in other in, in many other ones. Um, uh, Slido is probably the one that most people have been most larger corporations kind of were have been using. Uh, I don't know if they're still using it as, to the level since Cisco bought it. That's usually where. The people who have Cisco stuff all are happy, and the people who don't generally move on. So, um, so the uh, so we'll see how that you know see see where Slido goes. But the the big thing is is that when someone votes on a question, they become a stakeholder in it. They're interested in that question. They're much more likely to listen to the question, listen to the rest of the show, waiting for that question to potentially go up. Um, so, so by having vo a voting structure, you actually um, you know have people feel more more involved. And when you answer that question, you're not answering the question for um, you know, one person you're answering for 150 or 50 or eight or whatever, however many people voted on that question, you're answering their question too. And so they feel much more included. Um, and, and so you have to, you know, it, it also, the voting structure forces people to think about their own, um, they have to think about a question as it relates to everybody else. Like I have a question that's personal to me, but I have to think about how to phrase it in a way that is generalized into the rest of the audience. And that's why the down arrow is really useful. Most people don't put that in um, because they feel like it's too negative, um, but it really creates accountability that creates better questions in general. Um, and so uh, so you'll find that, that that tool is really valuable, but we don't, I think Makata is one of the only ones uh, that, that have that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so anyway, so the, um, that's the uh, you know that's that's what you want to kind of think about with those with with the Q and A systems. Um, I don't I, I don't because we have one. <laughs> I've had one for fifteen years. I don't know a lot of other ones um, that have quite the same level of feature set. The other thing is as the as those numbers get bigger, you have to have, you do have to have a lot of moderation in the background. You don't necessarily want to leave them all sitting out, um, and, you know, or you want to be able to have people and you can have different layers. Like some people may be moderated and other people may be not moderated. So yeah, I go with guy. Yeah, Slido is the one that we've used in the past, and it does have the upvote feature. I don't think that I've seen the downvote, but the other nice thing that they have is at the end, you can see um, a lot of uh, of the uh, engagement uh, results. You can see, um, uh, let's see, Q&A engagement. You can see the sentiment, uh, the positive, neutral. You can see the word cloud. So this is just some of the cool things that you can you can see uh, like where people are coming from. In this case, this one was predominantly London. You can see there's just interesting things that you can get out of uh, Slido. So that's the one that I would say to use. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael, and he notes a German company, Sport Total, is launching their AI-based camera system and streaming platform in the U.S. for the amateur and or youth sports market. Ever had any experience with similar products? And he's got a link there to let you see it. I think that I, I, I didn't see the link uh, um, before we got in, into this. I, there are a lot of AI-based, um, uh, there are a lot of AI-based cameras. Uh, and I think that for general purpose, you don't have enough, you don't have enough, and some of them are getting very good for sports. So these AI-based cameras are basically, they track the sports action. <clears throat> and the advantage of the AI, rather than just a raw tracker, 
they have some, they're, they're actually designed for some sports. They're, they are paying attention to what's going on in that sport and they're slowly following that, that process. So you'll see some of these, I don't know if it's this one specifically, but other ones that I've seen will be like, they're built for soccer and basketball and football and they're actually teaching them where to go. It's usually not gonna be for your close-ups. It's going to be a wide camera that's kind of moving back and forth, but it can kind of move with the sports action and it does mean that you can have another camera there, not another operator. So, so you can put your operator somewhere else and let them do more of the close-ups and so on and so forth. And so the other thing that's really interesting is the Mark Roberts system that I think that they built with Nikon. I, is that right? Um, Nikon or Panasonic, I can't remember which one. But they, um, uh, they have a bunch of AI, not AI cameras, but tracking cameras that track you have one operator following the following a player or following the ball. All the other cam cameras follow the same point on the field. And so you can have four or five cameras all converging on a person. Um, and so you have your your master operator sitting there going, following through it, and all of the other ones are sitting there following along. So you can get multiple angles of the play. Um, next question. Next question comes to us from Mitch Hill in Wilmington, Delaware. And Mitch says, we will be doing panel check instruction as part of our reader workshop today. Is there a way to get a Fenwick framer into the workshop? And he notes, P.S. I'm not using OBS. Go ahead, Mitchell. Not that I don't want to use it, so I'm not using it. But um, um, when you're trying to replicate what you're going to see as a uh, panelist or a reader um, on office hours, best to replicate the uh, the activities. So, looking to use the famous Fenwick Framer, which is now pretty much everywhere um, on the program. And I'm thinking maybe active uh, speaker on an ATEM, and then run that as a super. Is there a better way to do that? I think that that's that's the way to do it. If you you, you just have to get the active speaker out. Are you using Zoom ISO for that? I am not. So it'll have the uh, the stuff okay. down here. Oh yeah. So if you're grabbing it, well. If you have two screens, if it's your second screen, you should be able to go full screen with it and you shouldn't see any any of the debris at the bottom. Um, and so the uh, so that should be okay. You'll, you still will see a little red dot, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> so um, uh, the um, so you can uh, have that Fenwick frame where you have, pass, it in, pass it in and then you're just gonna key that over top of it. You can probably just use a Luma key for that if you have white over black and just Luma key it over and then send it back into your frame and that that should work just just fine. This is also, but it, it is a place where um, in something like that, you know, an OBS or, a, you know, a Zoom ISO and OBS or just OBS, um, you know, might might be good. I just don't know how stable it is on the Mac. Uh, have we decided that, has OBS gotten any better on the Mac? Someone asked me on Twitter. <laughs> John's Everybody seems best. to have problems, so I don't know what to do. Uh, yeah, so so I don't think that OBS is necessarily the the um, a, a solid solution on there. I mean, I'm using, of course, I'm using Memo Live, so I you know the, for for the stuff that I'm doing internal to the computer. Um, but uh, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, I don't know, and I think that's a, another good vote to maybe invite OBS. Uh, I don't know. I think it'd be a pretty rough crowd. The um, the uh, the I, I don't think that. Um, uh, yeah, I, the, the, the the trouble with OBS is that it, it's heavily used on the PC. It's very stable on the PC. A lot of people really enjoy it. I mean, it's, there's nothing, it's not the app itself. It's just that there's not as high a sample rate. And because it's open source, there's just not as much energy there because there's not a high sample rate. <laughs> you know, there's no one, there's no team whose job it is to make sure that the Mac version works, you know, at, at equal level of, of the, there might be a team there, but they're not, they don't have the same incentives. So, so I think that we, as a result, it's not very stable on the Mac. Um, uh, next question. 
Douglas Carmichael's up next, and he asks, on an M-series Mac, can you monitor GPU core utilization in Activity Monitor? And if not, what are the signs of an overloaded GPU? Uh, go ahead, uh, Jesse. This is one of those things where the Mac computer is absolutely designed to be used. And to show you what I'm talking about, we're going to go over to the desktop. Um, so to check this out, you go over to your utilities folder and load up Activity Monitor. And that will give you all kinds of information about how your computer is being used, including uh, C, uh, GPU usage and uh, GPU percent. And you can sort these by what's using it the most and what's using it the least. But to do exactly what you're saying, go to Window and go to uh, Command 4, Open Apple 4, GPU History. And what that will do is load a real-time running readout of how much of the GPU is being used. So you're seeing the average usage over time. And right here is when I did about a two-minute uh, DaVinci Resolve render. Yeah, and there is a, um, the one that what I use to manage this is called iStat Menu, um, and it, it works really well. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, on the PC, I use something called HW Monitor, and they do have a, a version for the Mac. Uh, it gives you, uh, it's nice because it, it, it breaks down everything. You see all your temperatures, you see all the uh, core speeds, the uh, all the speeds of all the cores, all the GPUs, the GPU utilization, et cetera, all in one long list right there. So it's very handy to have. I put it on all my machines, and it's free. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, with iStat Menu is the is the one that that I use. We I just get it all across the top. <laughs> so I see GPU, CPU, uh, bandwidth, everything else. You'll sometimes see me looking up because I'm trying to figure out if I've got a connection or how fast is this downloading, and it's all it's all just sitting in my in my. Uh, that's what a lot of us use for those. I think it's kind of standard issue for a lot of our computers on on the Mac side. Uh, next question. Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany says, I used a premium account from YouTube. Is there a way to get an invoice for that 12 euro payment? I couldn't find anything on the website. Good, Jeff. Yeah, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I sign up for it and it actually says the name on the credit card charge. So it's not just random. It says YouTube premium. Um, that's if you have it on a personal account. I don't have it on my uh, workspace account. I'm not even sure if you can. So I don't know if that's different, but at least on a personal uh, Google account doing that, uh, not that I'm aware of, but it should be on your statement. Uh, Nick, uh, Jeffrey. Uh, I put a link into Makana. There is a youtube.com forward slash purchases or paid underscore memberships is, is what I have here. And uh, that'll take you to the page where anything that you've purchased on YouTube, you're going to see, and that's including the premium membership. They don't send any emails out uh, on a regular basis for that. Next question. Next one comes from Sean Johnson in New York. And Sean says, has anyone had real world experience yet with the FR7? Is it possible to program moves and vary the speed and or length of the moves? I definitely think you can program the moves. Um, I, I'm not sure about how the programming works for the speed. We we should probably, it'd probably be worth bringing our FR7 users back in as like, now that you've, we kind of had almost an open box, <laughs> open boxing of it um, there. Uh, so I, I know that there's like three or four people within office hours that have the FR7s now that are using, that are using them. Everything I've talked to them about, they just can't, they can't stop talking about how great the cameras are. <laughs> so they just, they, they are, um, and I can tell you that when they sit side by side, almost any other PTZ camera, it just is astoundingly different. Now, again, they're not for, I don't think they're for the, 
putting the back of the room the way you would put most of the typical PTZs. But when the, when you're talking about using them in a studio or talking about putting them in the, you know within ten feet uh, of of a of a subject, uh, everyone just just says they're just they're just crushing it. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Our second hour demo is probably one of the best uh, uh, you know demonstrations of it on YouTube. If you do a search on it and find it. And as to the question speed length, I think you're referring to easing. Can you ease those moves in and out? And that would be cool if you could keyframe them. Yeah, go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I pinged um, um, Greg Gibson on this question just to see what he would say. And he says you can configure presets, but not moves as of yet. So that is something that is coming. And and yeah, it's just a matter of, of is there a protocol to talk to? Because then you could start feeding those, as, as Mitchell was talking, those curves into it. Uh, we've had some camera control systems that are usually a little, a little more expensive that you can literally build exactly. I want to go over here and go slowly and then come down and, you know, these motion control arms. And even just, there are many heads that will do that. So there's many programmable PTZ heads. Um, that you can put a camera on. They're not going to be as self-contained as an FR7, so you won't have all the other controls, but you can definitely build heads that are that you can absolutely program down to the, you know, you can build a nice little curve and, and pull them around. And they're not super expensive, um, but they, uh, they're, you know, a couple thousand dollars. So, so you can, and then put any camera you want on it. So that's another option too. Next question. Next one comes to us from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Josh says, what are the principles of setting up witness cameras for production? What cameras to use, what not to record, and how to parse them when needed, and how to keep the crew from blocking them? Good, Courtney. Well, the way you keep the crew from blocking them is you put them up above six feet high. You put them up in the grid. Uh, I used to use witness cameras when mixing roar because it would be dangerous to be in the room with all the lions and tigers. So I had a separate, this was back in the uh, early 70s, I had a separate little Viticon camera on a pan tilt head I built myself. I would stick it up in the rafters of the room we were shooting on so I could see where all the uh, players were and I could tell where the boom man was, etc. So uh, uh, you can, these days, you'd use, uh, simply use a wise camera. You know, I'd use something like this and they make a uh, PTZ that's fairly cheap. You can stick it up there and have private access to it. A lot of uh, production companies are extremely paranoid about having any behind-the-scenes cameras on since uh, they're shooting, especially if you're shooting a film or a television series because they want to keep the information about that episode from leaking out into the Internet. So they will be, you'll have to get approval from production to put something up and make sure that it's not accessible from the free world outside, usually only closed circuit. So only on a wire to a monitor at your cart is the safest way to do it. And that way, you know, nobody is listening in or watching in. And if you're using a wise camera, just use it on your own local area network that's not connected to the internet. And you should be able to see anything and even see it on your phone if it has Wi-Fi, but uh, it's encrypted. So that's a possibility. Yeah, depending on what you want to, want to use it for. We've used a lot of uh, witness cameras um, to, in a stage environment, we put them on either corners, kind of looking where it captures the stage in the front of where the confidence monitors are. And so we, we do that so that we know that the confidence monitors are, are putting up what they're supposed to put up. And we know that where people are standing and we know where things are happening. A lot of times you can be in the control room and not really know. And to be honest, those ones we use um, either, we typically use GoPros and they're really wide angles. Uh, we convert that HDMI to an SDI signal. These are the older GoPros. The newer ones are really 
<laughs> not, not very stable. So anything, oh, I, I don't, I haven't had a lot of success with anything newer than the six, um, where they don't somehow find a way to turn off on their own. So, um, so anyway, so the, and most of those, most of we use older ones because it doesn't really matter. Uh, the other ones we've used for these kinds of things are the, um, black magic, um, the, 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 what do they call them? The, broadcast micro the micro broadcast or micro studios um are, are are the ones that we've thrown up there because we can control them and zoom in and out and so on and so forth and so those work really well um they're inc it's incredibly valuable to capture um time lapses and behind the scenes because you can use those a lot of times as eye candy between things so you have a really long stream and you want to just at the end of the hour show something that's going to have people keep on watching there's nothing like a time lapse. <laughs> Watching a time lapse of the entire, you know, build happen or or something like that, um, you can do that. A lot of people will shoot time lapse. I tend to shoot video, and the reason I do that is that I can do um, time. You know, you can basically uh, you can do time echoing. So it's called time echo, I think, in in After Effects and Resolve. It's a it's a different filter inside of. I just found it in Fusion. <laughs> so so I was yeah yesterday I was trying to build some 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 of this and and I found it in Fusion so that you can. The Fusion one works actually way better than the Time Echo one in After Effects has probably not been updated for 20 years. And so it's just kind of there hidden in a little corner somewhere. And, it, and you have to create a, a subcomp to, you know, or you have to nest a comp and do a thing to get it to work. And in and, and, and Resolve, you just kind of pull a little slider and everything, everything just starts blending all those frames. And so anyway, so what you can do is now create these great like kind of washes of people moving around. And so I would highly recommend thinking about that. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, with more and more people working remote, if you have control of the set, if, if it's your production, uh, putting up a Zoom room with what we call far-end control enabled uh, to accept uh, the request automatically is a huge boon because uh, you can have that person uh, pan tilt left, right, and push into Zoom. So it's a, a really nice uh, way to give people afar the feel that they're there. So it's, a, it's something that we've never had in the past. Yeah, it was like a GoPro and you get one fisheye shot, but you can't. You can, if somebody walks out of the scene, you can't follow them. So um, it's just one recommendation if you're going to be doing this where it's your control and you're up for spending 49 bucks a month in a B-Link and uh, Huddlecam, Lumen. Some of these guys have uh, uh, nice cameras that have 12X zooms that are in the $500 range. So it's a nice package to have. Good, Jeffrey. Actually, I, Guy and I guy thought you were going to steal my answer. Uh, uh, SCES, we were at the Canon booth and they showed off a new uh, thing called Kokomo which is a multi-camera angling. And uh, so you don't have to be on set to, uh, to see what's going on and get different views and uh, be able to switch between the different views as well. So uh, if, I'm pretty sure, that, uh, yeah, that's it checked out Kokomo by Canon. Yeah, and producers think it's great to have lots of witness cameras there and directors do not think it's great to have lots of witness cameras <laughs> on the set they don't want someone saying why is everybody sitting around why are we why are we shooting right now anyway next question next one comes to us from ike potter potter in hanover germany and ike says i am confused with cabling and connectors sdi coaxial bnc please enlighten me good bill don't feel bad about being confused. Cabling is a confusing topic. There are a ton of standards. Everything is changing over the course of the time. Most of us who've been in the business for a long time started out uh, kind of in our early radio days or our early TV days uh, trying to understand the difference between cables. And there was a thing called the RG number or the radio guide number that was it is still commonly in use. So you'd have an RG6 cable, RG9 cable, an RG59 cable. All of them looked identical, but their characteristics were different. So you had to not only know what kind of cable you were using, 
But the fact that it had a particular connector on the end of it, it was terminated in a BNC, for example, didn't really give you much clue as to what kind of signal that cable was capable and built to carry. Um, we also had concerns with flexibility. Some cables were pretty stiff. They needed to be that for the kind of work that they were designed for. Others were easier to coil. So that became a factor. And then in the modern era, as things have moved from the old radio days to digital signals, uh, I was surprised in the early days because in some of the SDI thing connections I was making and in some of the uh, the digital camera connections, big cable with a with a BNC would start me off. But then one day I got a high level system and it had a very, very thin cable uh, and it was short, but it carried exactly the same level of signal on a very small cable that the big one. So I got further confused. So it's something you have to study and pay attention to. This is an evolving set of standards and you just have to learn it by doing it. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, different, uh, it's almost all coaxial cable and um, you shop for the cable for the, you know, if you're gonna make your own cables, uh, shop for your cable first based on the capability of its carriage. In other words, find a by cable that's SDI rated at 3 gigahertz, 6 gigahertz, or 12 gigahertz, depending upon your application and whether it's going to be long runs or short runs. Is it going to be cable that's thrown out and wound up, thrown out and wound up, so it has to be flexible? Or is it going to be a permanent installation inside a case or inside a facility? All these are determinations determine the type of cable that you're going to order. And so once you get a ordered cable that's going to work for your application, then you buy the connectors that are designed for that specific cable. And make sure that your connectors are designed for that because if they're crimp-ons, they have to match exactly the diameter of the cable and the uh, the way that the pins are either crimped on or soldered on. So uh, it's a process. You have to you know figure out the uh, speed of the, of the signal that you're using. You know, typical 12 gigahertz, if you're going to go 8 up to 8K, the um, you want the 12 gigahertz. If you're just going to go HD, then the 6 or the 3 will work for you. Uh, and uh, the higher the uh, frequency response of the, or the frequency capability of the cable, the longer the runs you can do without loss. So just keep all that stuff in mind, uh, and you should be okay. Good guy. Yeah, Courtney summed it up really well. You want to just be really careful as to which signal that you want to throw down and how far because that will d determine if it's going to work or not. So I had a couple examples. One uh, local high school, actually it was the high school I went for, they, they bought from us uh, uh, an ATEM switcher and they were running 4K uh, Blackmagic cameras. And they said that they would get the cable themselves. Uh, you know, I'd spec'd out everything on the sheet and then... Uh, at the end, they said, oh, we'll, we'll get the cable ourselves. And they wound up saying that none of it worked. So they ordered like five rolls and they thought they were getting a better price, but they wound up with 3G cable that was 300 foot. And for their football games, they they weren't, weren't able to squeeze anything higher than 720p out of it. So uh, another example was I was a TriCaster operator at a local racetrack here and there was some coax that was older coax. And they were like, hey, let's just use this. And for this far end camera, because it went over the uh, the start and so you're out of the way, you don't want to run you know, a cable underneath the, unless there's a truck or something underneath the track. So uh, when I went to cut in the TriCaster, there was so much delay because they had to boost the signal with an AJA, SDI, um, uh, what do you call it, the DA. And so they were trying to push uh, an HD signal over RG, I think it was 59. So there's 75. There's different RGs, as Courtney was alluding to. And the, the reality is that if you get the wrong stuff, the timing will be off. So timing and resolution are big things to consider when you're uh, specking out cable. Go ahead, Mitchell. 
Yeah, it's uh, also about impedance. I think we were just talking about that 75 or 50, 50 mean mostly broadcast. Um, and if the impedance isn't correct, you get the bounce well, and you get the delay that Guy was just talking about. Uh, 50 is an antenna for, uh, 50 is to go to your antennas for, Sorry. for audio. 75 is for uh, for what you wanted to put video over. And you can, both of them will work at three feet or six feet. Uh, then, then after that, they stop working very well. So you just want to be very careful of that. Um, we are going to talk more about BNC right now. I'm, I'm, I'm switching my home studio back to STI. I've got almost all the pieces here. And, um, and so I'll be making cables and, and uh, I'm building a wiring diagram right now, probably this weekend that I'll start making cables here. Or, and so, um, so anyway, so we'll, we'll talk more about that, but we probably, it's probably worth the second hour just talking about SDI. Go ahead, Courtney. Another thing to watch out for is the 50 ohm connectors and the 75 ohm connectors are different. Uh, they look the same, but the diameter of the center pin is slightly different. And if you use a lot of these cheap, uh, you know, you'll find adapters that'll go BNC to RCA or BNC turnarounds, et cetera. If they're designed for 50 ohm cables, which a lot of them are, because uh, they came out of the old networking, uh, you know, Ethernet, before Ethernet was Ethernet, there was coaxial Ethernet, uh, were designed for those old 50 ohm cables. And if you use the 50 ohm uh, connectors or adapters into 75 ohm connectors for a while, it splays out the inner connector that, that clamps onto that center pin. And then when you put a 75, a correct 75 ohm connector in there, that center pin will be a little loose and it'll give you an iffy connection. So you got to be careful that you get your connectors are all 75 ohm and uh, balanced and designed for that impedance. Next question. Next one comes to us from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Kenny says, curious how Alex is creating the colored dots integrated into his background today. Magic, magic. <laughs> so these are, uh, I got these on Amazon. There, the there's a there's a app called Hello Fairy that goes with these. That that right now it's set to a color, so I can sit there and you know play with the colors. You can see me kind of playing with them there. It's got things that would drive everybody crazy. You know, you don't have to. You know, I can go in here and say I want to have them all start to you know move all the time. Um, I thought that that would be a little annoying. And there's like a hundred different you know things that you could. You can do with those um, as you start to put them together, but I've chosen not to not to make it more Christmassy. Uh, so anyway, they're fifteen dollars. <laughs> they were they were on my tree. I, obviously, I just took the tree down and I said, "I wonder what would happen if I put them put the tree lights." I, here's the problem: is I really like guys, uh, the lights on behind guy. And I was like, I need some lights. And Guy has cool ones, but I can't figure out what I would even do with them. I think guys look natural because they're next to a fireplace and mine do not. Um, so anyway, so I got those. I have some light ropes from a previous project um, that I'm going to play with. I do like the idea of having lights in the background. I'm not going to keep them like this, I promise. Um, that would make everybody a little nutty. But uh, anyway, I'm going to put, I want some lights there. This is not the answer. It's just the moment of me figuring this out. Go ahead, Jeff. I, I wanted to be on deck because <clears throat> I love this question. There was a 50-50 chance that it was a cheap $15 uh, uh, LED strip uh, or it was an insanely complex uh, digitally created sequence and layered and everything else. But if it was the strip, I did want to hear how you're controlling it. Um, what I uh, have played with also, because I have a few strips, just to add color and I put it like under cabinets and stuff. Looks really cool. Uh, nice effect at home. And I found uh, I use smart things uh, for some of my home automation. 
And whether you have that or Alexa, if it is a light strip that uses the, the I don't know if it's standard, but very typical power connector that connects it to the controller that that app is talking to, um, other companies make replacements and they are uh, Zigbee controlled uh, adapters that you plug them into instead. And now your smart things or your Alexa or whatever can control everything about it, colors, brightness, everything, which is really cool. There is a protocol that for a lot of the stuff that um, that you can, if you get some of the larger ones, this one doesn't do it, but there's a protocol for these lights. And so you can just program them if you get geeky enough. I haven't done that yet. Um, Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, uh, all Christmas decorations must be down by the end of January. <laughs> well, that's, why, that's why these are here. Uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida, here on the panel. Does anyone know if there's a way to get iPhones to show the actual time, not the legendary 9.41 a.m. when screen mirroring out through the lightning port? Jeff, can you explain? I don't I don't quite understand the question. Sure, yeah. So, and unfortunately, I, I just thought of it after I sat down, so I don't have a way of doing it. If anyone does have a, mm-hmm. uh, a way of plugging in their phone, mirroring it, and showing it, it, it took me a long time not to realize what was going on. I, I thought my phone was broken. I thought it was hacked. I thought whatever, I was rebooting it. And it turns out, Apple in their infinite wisdom, when they do their keynotes and everything else, and, and especially when they were doing them live and they were plugging the actual phones in, they wanted it to be consistent. And 9.41 a.m. happens to be the time the first iPhone was debuted. Um, and so they've literally built that in, that if you plug in and mirror it, it will just show 9.41 a.m. It won't change. I think and I think it's, who's doing that right now? Um, if we look at bills, it does have the time. Uh, so yeah, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure when it, Bills is getting the time. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I've seen. Go ahead. It, in the upper left corner. Well, I uh, guess you have it there too. Yeah. And you're plugged in via lightning. Yeah, I think Bill is. I'm plugged in via a lightning to HDMI adapter and it's sending it out the signal via HDMI. That's interesting when the, this is an iPhone uh, 14, when it dims, it does, it stops sending. I don't think that's the same thing versus if you're plugged in lightning to the computer and you're using it as a, um, a true video source. Oh yeah. I don't know. We don't do that very much. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But, but yeah, let's, we'll, we'll take a look at that. Yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. Tom real quick. Hi. Yeah. And I'm going through an Apple TV and I'm getting the correct time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that, but I think that the, yeah, I can't test it. I don't have the cable to test that right now, uh, next, next, but, but we'll, we'll take a look at that. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I only even thought to throw it out here cause I figured, um, with events, you know, maybe people are, are putting it up on screen for various events and have, uh, have dealt with it. Before. Yeah. I think that, I think most of the, there's not, while you can connect your iPhone to directly to the computer, almost all of us have some kind of switcher or some kind of other thing in between. Um, and, uh, I, we have tested it, but I haven't tested it recently. And it's always been when the phone's on, it wasn't locked. It was just on and it's sending a camera. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Gilberto El Spici in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. And, uh, the question is any tools to locally or remotely live translate an event using burned in captions? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, that makes it a little difficult if you're going to try and do it live. You may have to delay it some because most text-to-speech conversion, and that includes translation, uh, 
has to take into account the um, the words surrounding the words that it's translating. So it has to be contextual to get it uh, to get the um, speech to text correct. So that that takes some time and it changes if you watch Google Translate or any uh, Google Text to Speech or YouTube Text to Speech. You'll see the the text changing as it interprets it different. When it gets to the end of the sentence, it may change words. And if you're putting that out live, you don't want it changing like that. So you may have to delay the video and have something that will uh, not output the uh, captioning. And they'll probably output it as closed captions, but you could probably bring it in as a separate input and just key it over the top. Uh, only after it has finished, has settled down and, and established a caption. So you may have to delay the video going out so that it will uh, remain in sync with what you're seeing. Yeah, this this industry is moving very very fast. Uh, you should probably be able to do most of this by yourself without you know without a lot of extra help. Uh, we were just um, I think we were talking about on MacBreak yesterday that how a lot of these tools now are getting to a point with especially with AI that the the GPT solutions for captioning turn out to be very robust. Um, and so you're going to probably see a lot more in that area. Uh, the AI media is the leader in this area. Um, so they bought EEG, which makes the hardware that a lot of us have used for years to do captioning. And But what they do is the original, trans. They'll, they will transcribe in the original language that it comes in at. And, it, and then they will, uh, you can add as many, you know, they'll use some version of AI to then convert all of those to other languages. Um, typically the way you do it, you can do it locally where you have a piece of hardware and you're using either Falcon or I, their iCap solution with, um, you know, they have a couple diff different things. And they came on and talked about some of these in one of our earlier second hours. Um, and then uh, the other way to do it is you can RTMP to a server and it will process that audio and build captions for you on the way out. And so it will either, you can have it burn it in, or you can also have it um, put it into the into the actual bank data um, that's there. So you can have it inserted. If you have the hardware to do that, you can have it inserted. The RTMP, you can choose whether it's going to send it as a, um, you know, embedded with the with the video or whether it's going to send it, you know, to a separate sidecar to to make that available as well. So there's a bunch of different options there. Uh, we had them on maybe a year ago. Uh, we might have them on again, have them talk about it a little bit. And I'm actually looking at trying to figure out how we might use some of that here where we add captions to our to our streams. And I think that um, th those things are moving relatively quickly. And I think there's actually a captioning option that we haven't tested very much in uh, Zoom now. Um, so that, that's available that we can use inside of Zoom meetings. Um, that, that So a lot of this stuff is going to become relatively easy to do. Go ahead, Jeff. And that's newer. Um, and I'm sure that's probably what Alex described as a better solution, although it sounds complicated. Uh, an easier one, Microsoft Teams, uh, for quite some time now has had live translation. It's it's very high quality. So, you you know, even if you're not using Teams, you could just have a machine, um, you know, pumping the meeting through Teams and it the output will have the live translation. Yeah, Google Meet will do it as well. And sometimes we've, <laughs> in a pinch, we've taken Google Meet and literally just cut the bottom part out and keyed it over top of the bottom to burn it in because it does a really good job. So that's another thing to do. But when you want to translate it is the, is the key. And, and Teams has been the forefront. The Skype for Business, I think, started with it. But the Bing um, solutions, I think for, for, I think it's more now, but when we used it, it was like 60 languages and you could just decide what language you want to see it in. And it was relatively accurate. So this is a very fast moving uh, opportunity. Next question. 
Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael again. Alex, you mentioned that the M2 Mac Mini would run the risk of thermally throttling under a sustained load. Would the issue be worse for the M2 Pro? As I talked about yesterday, I'm seriously considering it as an upgrade from my 2013 Mac Pro. I think that we were talking about it in comparison to the to the Mac Studio. So I think that I think the Mac Studio is going to perform better. I think that the Pro is going to probably perform very well. Um, I don't think that that's going to be that big of a deal. But if you you probably would get a higher performance, um, you know, at a, at a similar price as you start to get to those really high end ones, because if you start getting a ton of RAM and a ton of um, CPU power, you're you're now we're expecting that you're going to use that, and if you're going to use it, you're going to heat it up, and I think that's going to be the challenge there. I go ahead, Courtney. I haven't seen any reviews because I don't think they're out yet to see whether or not the fan noise would be an issue if you're putting it into a recording studio. That might be a consideration because we don't know what the fans are going to be like on the new uh, uh, M2 Pros because uh, they are fan-cooled in those Mac Minis. Usually the the fans are really quiet in the Mac Minis. You barely hear them. But if you're putting it you know close to the microphone, that might be a consideration. I, I don't know if I've ever heard mine. <laughs> so, so like I've, I've got a lot of them, but I don't know if I've ever, they've ever made any noise. Um, next question. Next one comes to us from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenhoff, Germany, and he says, how many displays can you add natively to an M1, M2, and M2 Pro Mac Mini? Good, Tom. The specs for the Mac Mini have been two monitors for the M1 and the M2. However, the new M2 Pro supports three, two 6K monitors and one HDMI 4K monitor. For some reason, when we, when we talked about it on Mac break, and, and, and that's what it says in their specs, because I thought when we talked on Mac mm-hmm. break, it, it camp is four, um, four monitors. Mm-hmm. But if it's just three, it's just three. There you go. Uh, next question. Roberto, um, SPG is back from Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Can the SuperSource animations the Mix Effect app provides be triggered from the ATEM Mini at stream itself? Uh, yeah, the, you can definitely, um, you can't trigger the super, that you can't trigger Mix Effect Pro from the, a lot of us have been thinking about this, is that we have all these buttons sitting on our Mac, on our A10 Mini, and we use almost none of them. <laughs> so so the uh, so it would be great to be able to reprogram those or even just have them deliver, uh, del- if, if all these buttons here just, just told us, had a protocol to tell us that they, someone had pushed one. We could do an enormous number of things, you know, that like all we need to do is just get some feedback that just says, I push the focus button on the whatever. And, um, and, and it would yeah, it'd be a big deal. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, are the macro buttons exposed in the API? Then you might be able to program something uh, to trigger mix effects from yeah. using the six macro buttons, I think, that you have on the extreme. I do not know. Yeah, I mean, you might be able to. You might be able to get that to, them to do something like that. But I think that for the most part, there's not a lot of communicate external communication there that it tells you what's happening. So um, we have talked to Adam about that. We'll talk talk to him about it again. Maybe the macros could be one way to do that. Um, but the but I think that the. I mean, I just keep the iPad sitting next to me to to run it. But if you're trying to push it away somewhere, I could see why you might want to use the use the surface. Um, you could. In the larger switchers, if you're not, if you're using a larger ATEM switcher, you're going to have a GPIO ability, and that GPIO ability will now let you do all kinds of things. And you could definitely convert that GPIO back to OSC or MIDI or or something like that. So we used uh, to put in. We had a situation where we had a bunch of uh, 360 cameras that we were cutting a 360 show, but when you cut the 360 cam to another 360 camera, you have to have change the surround sound that goes into that 360. So you, otherwise, you're getting sound from a different angle. 
And so to, to reorient all of the sound, um, we had a GPIO connection from the ATEM to the, to a QL5. And so that it would change scenes as you, as you cut. And so you didn't have to do that. Um, and so it, there's a lot of options there. And so if, if you're using a larger ATEM switcher with a GPIO, then you have a lot of other options. Next question. Next one comes to us from Douglas Carmichael again. And Douglas this time says, DirecTV is laying off hundreds of workers in response to the, quote, decline of the pay TV market. Is this a response to current economic conditions or is this a writing on the wall for the traditional video programming industry? Go ahead, Nigel. I think it's a response to the fact that AT&T spun off uh, DirecTV into a separate company, although they own uh, a majority of it. It's a separate company, and that company is milking the cow, as we say, in business strategy, and they're trying to get as much money uh, for the asset as it dies. I think the reality for most people is that the abundance of bandwidth means you can do all of this through streaming or through your internet provider. You don't need a satellite system unless you're pretty remote and you can't get a good signal. Um, I would also tell you that the one upside of both uh, Dish More Than Direct TV and even cable systems, they are much easier to integrate into a home automation system so that you can have a simple remote where you just have a picture of the channel and the person presses and it does that automatically. However, most people are putting an Apple TV in their system, either in their control or behind every TV. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. The only reason I have DirecTV is the DVR is nice. Uh, satellite delivery is a dinosaur. It's going away. And um, I don't use uh, the pay-per-view aspects of DirecTV at all anymore. I'd rather do it on Apple. Yeah, go ahead, uh, Courtney. Yeah, there's a paradigm shift coming as everything moves to IP-based video. And uh, everyone needs an internet connection these days. So anyone that has a reasonably high-speed internet connection can get all of their television over that internet connection. You don't need a satellite dish. Also, the old satellite transponders, and they're on those direct TV satellites, are limited in bandwidth, and you're not going to get 4K out of them. You're only going to get 1080p or 720p in many, many situations. So uh, unless they are going to go to the expense of putting up new satellites, I don't see that happen. I have to say that having YouTube TV, being able to just say, I want to record all of the things all the time is really, really addicting. Uh, so, so I think that, I think that's, yeah, I think the market has changed past direct TV. Next question. Next one comes to us from Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herrenhoff, Germany. What motorized slider system would you recommend for professional use? KesslerCrane.com, SlideCamera.com or other brand? I think it would depend. It depends on what you need to do with it. Um, Kessler Crane uh, actually makes a, um, makes a good one. So that, that's a, that is definitely a good option there. There's, uh, Edelchrome makes a couple different arms, um, and systems that, that also are, are pretty good. And there's a, there's a whole host of other ones. So you really, especially with these things, you have to really make a hard decision, um, about what you're trying to get and make sure that it provides it. Are you doing small moves or are you doing big moves? Um, you can get sliders, the original slider, so to speak. And it's literally, it says it, it says it, it's cut out of it on the side. Uh, is really hefty and you can do slides that are 30 feet long. They're like three foot sections and you just put them together and then you can have motorized sliding to go very long, uh, over very long runs. Uh, and then there's other ones you want to put into a backpack and you pop it up and make it work. And so those are, there's a lot of different options there and you have to decide exactly what you need. Go ahead, Bill. 
I've heard good things about the Edelchrome. I also think Matthews has one. The thing that you want to watch for, the, the best of the sliders, and at this thing, if you're looking for a professional one, even on the three-foot distance of the track moving left to right, it will change subtly the camera position so that once you frame a person in a particular um location they don't move in perspective that's usually a sign that they paid a lot of attention to the engineering on the slider so look for that yeah go guy yeah the one that i've seen people talking about a lot lately is the rhino so rhino camera gear and these ones they have even arcs so that they can uh spin around but yeah yeah we we own Andalcrone, but uh, i really want to get one of these rhinos if i was to buy again i would definitely be in the, in the researching rhino instead of just Edelcrone. Next question. Next question comes from Douglas Carmichael. We've talked about the Raspberry Pi, but has anybody used the Arduino platform in production? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we've we've definitely used it. An example of how we used it: uh, we had a, a shot where it was a um, it was during a draft, a football draft, and the the owner of the football team wanted to know that they could push a button. And it would just cut away. Like if they don't want to be on air for a minute, they want to be able to push a button and never go away. And so we built a little box that was connected to an Arduino. And so we printed the box. We even put their their team's logo on the on the on the button. And um, and so we had the button there. We had a little Arduino controller, and it we had uh, you know an Ethernet to it, and basically ran it out to um, an ATEM, and that told the ATEM to when if you hit the button, told the ATEM to switch to a specific output. Um, and that and that output was I think it switched to the output or cut to um, still or whatever, but it was it was the I want to go. So we were able to build something, and there's a lot of different things you can do with Arduino in that respect. But that's an example of how we've uh, how we used it. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's the glue that holds special effects technicians together in the set these days. Anytime they need to remotely control something or do something precisely, uh, they press into into work the Arduino because it can take GPI interfaces of button clicks and so on. It can do uh, stepper motor drivers, etc., for moving stuff precisely on the set. And, uh, anytime anything like that is needed, usually an Arduino steps up to the plate. All right, next question. Douglas Carmichael, when do you think we'll see the M2 Max Max Studios? You know, I think that um, I'm going to guess that we're going to see them by June. <laughs> so by the end of June, we will see the Mac, the Mac Studio M2s. Uh, if I was going to guess a little harder, uh, I'd probably say that we'll see him, that we'll see, we'll see uh, the studios uh, in March. Um, but I think that March or more March or June. June is the 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 traditional place that you put the next um, announcement for a computer. But they typically, you know, oftentimes they put March is kind of a time when Apple releases um, the iPad. Uh, you know, the new flagship iPad is kind of the March window. Um, and but we have seen Mac Minis announced there. The interesting thing is, that, of course, they did the Mac Mini with their own video, but without an announcement. So it's kind of interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see what happens in March. Um, of course, a lot of us are also wondering whether we're going to see a Pro, you know, that that um, that might pop up there. So the Pro, the Pro and the new Studio or just the Pro could come out in, in March. Um, I do feel like it does feel odd that the Studio hasn't doesn't have an M2 version now, now that all the other ones do. There's kind of a TikTok that that you kind of, I think Apple was a little out of 
it, it makes they're making it confusing by not having them all on the same chip. <laughs> That's all I have to say. It's like it would just be good if we said, okay, we're gonna put these all on M2s. Like there, at some point they have to get this cycle to a point where it just turns on. Um, but they don't they they, I, they I'm sure they have a good reason for not having this this TikTok, but I'm not sure what it is. It's a little frustrating as a user to to be, you know, in these different uh, feel like you're in different chipsets. Go ahead, Jeff. And I guess I would just caution everyone because that's a great prediction. But, you know, it's like reading the tea leaves or, you know, the, throwing the chicken bones out on the floor. I mean, you're as likely to nail. A- a- Apple is famous for um, kind of sticking to that principle of it'll be out when it's ready. And and that's the, you know, they're they're for the foreseeable future, never going to get on that kind of uh, mandated, predictable schedule because they don't want to be locked into that. They want to release it when it's ready. And that's how they kind of iterate each of them and, and, and cycle the chips into the new versions of the machines. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll have to see. Either way, they're, they're, there's a lot of really fast computers that Apple's releasing right now. So it's, good, it's a good time to be an Apple user. <laughs> so anyway. All right, we are changing subjects to our second hour, and we have an old friend of mine. Uh, I'm really, really excited to have uh, John Tatoulis on uh, from Hank's Craft. Uh, hey, John, how are you doing? I am very well, thank you. It's good to see you here. Um, yeah, John and I met in at NAB. So this is, you know, I always talk, oh, you don't need to go to shows and you don't need to walk through expos, <laughs> but that's how we met. That, that's how we met. I, it was probably, I don't know, more than 15 years ago, I think. Uh, you I know. think it was... 2008, when Sound Devices introduced the 788T. Yeah, yeah. And I had recognized you because I heard your voice because I was listening to some of Leo's podcasts in the day. And I heard this voice that sounded really familiar, and there was Alex. And we started a conversation, immediately went to some arcane gear discussion and uh you know that friendship continues yeah i, I started getting 788s and 744s and uh and and and, and lots and lots of uh, sound devices gear i also was, was we were able to get john every once in a while when he was free we'd get him to work on shows with us <laughs> so it was always great I, I recall you were the canary in the coal mine because you would show applications for instance, on the 788T, I think you were one of the few users that used it as a routing matrix. And <laughs> it was, you know, the routing was insane. If you actually mapped it out in that little box, you know, and we didn't never, you know, back then, I don't think we ever really considered it exactly in that application, but uh, you know, we were really pushing the envelope. Yeah, it, it was, it, it, well, I didn't know how to use any other mixer. So it was just the thing that we, that we, uh, you know, we know how to use this one. So, so we figured it out, but yeah, it was great. And, and so we've, we've gotten to uh, do a lot of, do a lot of work together in the last 15 years. And Joy, John, how did you, how did you get into this? Like, how did you even get into the sound recording industry? Is this where you started? I was a film major at Northwestern and Northwestern's in Evanston, Illinois. I graduated from there. I had a summer job as a event photographer and I would shoot party pics for corporate events and social events and such. And I had a resume on me and I went over to Shure to get a couple of mic clips and a couple of windscreens. And I went to the service department and I was wearing a t-shirt and a pair of shorts and I decided I'd just drop off my resume in their HR department. I, I went into HR, I dropped my my resume off and the manager of customer service Maureen O'Reilly was happened to be in the HR department at the exact same time 
And she said, oh, you just graduated? You, you know production? You know this and that? And she said, Let's, uh, do you have a few minutes to have a conversation? And here I am. I'm literally in a T-shirt and shorts. I was not prepared for this. I, I had three interviews that day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and a couple of days later, they presented me with a, a job offer in customer service. And I was thrilled. And I remember talking to my father and the audio industry, and I think it's probably similar, is notoriously not necessarily the best paying industry uh, and certainly manufacturers in the, in that era. And I talked to my father about it and he said, you know, it doesn't really matter what that first job salary is if it's something that you're going to enjoy. And, you know, we started working at Sure and you know, the first time I got a paycheck, I said, they're actually paying me to be here? This is incredible. It was kind of the best of both worlds. And I was in uh, Sure's customer service department for about nine months and uh, answering the 800 number, talking to customers, doing wireless configuration. This was back in the day of systems that were single frequency. So you would, you know, each individual model was its own frequency. There was no agility back in the day. And uh, doing some frequency coordination in the VHF band. And then working for the sales managers. And then from there, I moved into a product management position and then uh, continued in that role. And by what, the time what I product it, did you manage? I was uh, responsible for all things, uh, all, you know, surprise, surprise, mixers and signal processing products. Yeah. <laughs> so things that were my baby were the, uh, you know, the FP series of products. And so, uh, you know, when I was managing that group, we came out with the FP32A which was then replaced by the FP33. We came out with uh, the SEM series of mixers. The uh, FP410 had just been introduced when I first started in that role. And that was the first automatic mixer for production applications. And that was, you know, a DC powered device able to be run off a battery. You know, it was really a, a unique piece. And that, uh, you know, that, experience and in, in that heritage in the product side of that i was working with other folks within sure including uh you know what was to be my future partner matt anderson uh, and jim kumar in that group and i was at sure from 1989 to 1998 when uh, we left to start sound devices and courtney you had a question there yeah i was wondering john if you were responsible for this was my ah. first sure mixer <laughs> is it a 67 yeah, yeah, with the uh, battery adapter on the side of it. Uh, and you'll notice an old Nagra strap around because I used yeah. to carry it around my neck as a mixing. I, I was a, a slasher. I slashed and discontinued massive numbers of products that, uh, that were just selling in the tens. Uh, you know, sure That's when you the, left on the floor. Huh? The, sure had the, the AudioMaster 1200 back in the day. It was a PA system. I discontinued that. Uh, the FP51, which is still a kind of a classic for voiceover because it is such an aggressive compressor. I discontinued that. <laughs> it was amazing. I still, I still buried it. <laughs> you know, you, you had to look from a, a business perspective. Do these models, you know, support uh, existing business? But um, no, the, the 67 was was discontinued. Uh, I did discontinue the M267 because we had come out with a replacement, the M367. And here's the interesting thing about broadcasters and, uh, you know, kind of their anti-risk mentality. And that is 
three years after we had discontinued the M267, we were still getting orders for it because there was just so much momentum. People were comfortable with it. This is what they were specking. So, you know, you have to recognize in some of these markets, if it's not broken, they are just not going to move to the next generation of technology. And there's good reasons for moving and there's good reasons for staying. Yeah, we were using these as uh, submixers for uh, monitor feeds and so on for years after they you know, dropped out of existence from sure. But yeah, they, they had a long life. I think this one still works. I'll have to hook it up and try. Yeah, the, the front end on that, that really requires you to hit the front end pretty hard and you know, run the gains quite high because its, it's self-noise is a little bit high, but you can overcome it if you really are you know, running at higher gain levels. But you know, kind of to think about it, some of those mixtures, like an M67, I think from input to output has like over 100 dB of gain. I mean, it's just a massive amount of gain. And you think about why that is, well, you know, this is an example. This is uh, you know, an MV7 which is Shure's dynamic uh, USB uh, microphone. You know, m microphones like the SM5 and the SM, you know, there were numerous generations of SM microphones. They were so incredibly low output, you needed that kind of gain. You needed significant amount of gain in order to get them up into a usable spot. You know, a modern condenser microphone has such incredibly hot output with you know such good dynamic range and and noise performance. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. When I first got into radio, we had those level locks, which were uh, interesting mic compressors, the poor man mic compressors. And I'll never forget opening it up to see what the magic was inside. It was just a couple of components, uh, point to point, uh, soldered together in very sloppy ways, but it sounded pretty good. So, and what did that? Uh, so, John, what did that, how did that set you up for sound devices, having 10 years at Sure, You know, Sure is an incredible company. It's a, it's a very well-managed business. They have their processes absolutely nailed. Their heritage is, is fantastic, and they've built upon that. They've taken advantage of all that. So, really, for me, it was like going to, you know, it was, it was like going to Sure University right. and learning how to behave in a market and they're an incredibly ethical business and you know have have high performance products and you know as a 29 year old that's I, I always thought i could do better than that so <laughs> you know we uh you know me and my partners we we left and and we took that knowledge as kind of our our foundation but what we quickly realized in a startup environment is you know here's three people sitting in a room looking at each other and, you know, we want to do this, you know, sure had a department for that. Oh, we want to do that. Sure had an entire department for that. You know, you, you fail to recognize all these little nuances that become yeah. part of a business. And that was really my, you know, kind of, uh, you know, baptism by fire into to the business environment, kind of transitioning from looking at from a, from a product side of it to the business side of it. Yeah, no, absolutely, Jeff. I just had to take the unique opportunity uh, to see there's got to be, uh, or make one up real quick, a great story maybe behind uh, the Metallica's choice mic with the custom uh, black finish and the and the red uh, foam inside. You know, there's, uh, you know, Schur's uh, artist relations, I think over the years have done some incredible things with, with different artists. And, uh, you know, they've, 
they were doing that in the earliest days from the 50s 60s you know their vagabond wireless was was uh used by sinatra you know so they had relationships with artists and were doing unique things i remember there was a, a case it was in building one in evanston and it had this gold microphone i can't remember who used it it was a gold sm58 and i just always walked by that and i just was always in awe of it it was it was beautiful well, in a lot of ways, the artists do, they, they look at you know, other artists, look at what that artist is using and just go, well, if they're using that, that's probably going to work. You know, like that's, that, that's how it sounds. So it seems like a, it's a good business model. Um, yeah. I mean, if you think about a, a microphone or, you know, a lot of our gear ends up being, uh, you know, kind of an extension of the art and a representation of that. So obviously musical instruments are part of that, but even the electronics become part of that. I'm good, Bill. I just wanted to let you know, John, that there's still a couple SM5s out there. This is my first SM5B from probably 1973. Uh, and I'm just wondering, is that actually just a 57 capsule in the middle of this thing? You know, the SM5, I'm not exactly sure what the material of the coil is on that. Uh, I'm surprised those foam windscreens are still intact. They were not. Crumbled. This is a third party that I, it took me like 15 years to find one because you're right. They outgassed and just all disintegrated. Yeah. I, uh, you know, th there was one day I may or may not have dumpster dived the service department at Sure. And I may or may not have a variety of old microphones that Sure may not have uh, <laughs> wanted to hang on to and dispose of, uh, <laughs> including some ribbons and, you know, some other types of microphones that are still, you know, wonderful and sound great. So, so you got to, so you started sound devices and what was your first product? The, the very first product that we penned was actually a portable mixer. And we put together a product definition of what we thought was a very competitive portable mixer in the market. And we went to a gentleman, some of you may know Peter Ang. Peter has made a variety of specialty uh, production tools, whether it's uh, the Guzman or uh, cable harnesses and such. And we had a conversation, Jim Coomer had a conversation with Peter Ang, and we showed him our design for this product. And Peter said, yeah, this is a nice product, but it's just yet another product. It's not necessarily very unique. And uh, he was right. And also, from a company that was just starting out, we recognized that doing a field mixer that was truly competitive was going to be kind of a moonshot. We really didn't have any suppliers. We had no customers. We had uh, you know, just started a relationship with Hankscraft, which uh, is a contract manufacturer, uh, which I'm sitting in Hankscraft right now. Um, and what we did do is we changed what that first product was and we simplified it and came out with the mp1 so the mp1 is uh the single channel mic preamplifier i believe sound devices still has it in their product line great preamplifier all transformer input and output uh, really efficient power supply powered off of two AA batteries and, and the that MP1, was the first product and, and how is the mp1 different than the mm1 the mp1 is a simplified product that is simply mic preamplifier, step gain, just like the MM1, but there's no return, there's no headphone uh, 
connectivity like the MM1. So the MM1 was a, a variant that came out, I think right around 2000, we first introduced that. We came out with the HX3, the MM1, and the 442. We announced all those, I think, at NAB 2000. And, uh, you know, so the, the MP1 and the MM1, I believe, are still in the product line. And we're, and when did it really, when did you really feel like you were, had your feet under you? Did you ever feel that way? <laughs> did you ever feel that way? Like, like that you were really moving? Like there, there's a point where you, you know, you're just trying to get things off the ground. And then there's another point where, you know, you've got kind of a, you've got momentum. Is, was there a, was there a certain product line or a certain place in the company where you felt like you just had kind of uh, just positive forward momentum? I think the 442 was that. And, you know, it's, product definition came out from a lot of those conversations with Peter Eng. And I think what that product represented was something that was unique at the time because it had as many outputs as it did inputs. 442 had a set of balanced outs. It had another set of balanced outs on a multi-pin. It had TA3 outs. It had a unbalanced uh, you know, 3.5 on it, another unbalanced mono sum 3.5. So it had all these outputs and customers who were using it said, you know, I was in this, uh, you know, this press grouping and somebody needed an extra feed and I was able to, you know, send them a feed. So we saw that that connectivity in a portable product was really what, what differentiated. It had direct outputs for each of the inputs. So it had all kinds of connectivity. How long does it take to, from the time you start designing a new product to the time people start buying it? What's the timeline for that kind of thing? Well, you know, going back to the MP1, when we started with that product, we introduced it at NAB 1999. And we were all excited. We went to the show and we had the MP1. We had one product. And we were thinking that, the, you know, we're going to set the, the world on fire with the single product. But it really wasn't until, you know, four years that the MP1 itself started to really three about three years started to gain a little bit of acceptance in the market that it was designed for and things kind of build on each other so you know if you're a company and you come out with a single product if you're the retailers or if you're an organization it's hard for you to change what you're doing because of one product so once you start to add additional products then you become more relevant to that customer you're more relevant to the dealer. The dealer's going to invest in you. So we, we had that situation in the early days where we just had a couple products. You know, they were, they were interesting and unique, and they worked great, but they were, less, uh, they were less interesting to the customers to change from what they were doing because, you know, at the time, we were a one-product company. So yeah. any, any one-product company, you know, that's, that's the risk. Good, Courtney. Uh, yeah, I think I've known you uh, since the 744T. Was that the first uh, uh, product that was a file-based recorder that uh, Sound Devices came out with? I, I know I've been bending your ear about it ever since. Yeah. The 744 uh, that and the 722 came out at the same time. Those, and the those were our, certainly Sound Devices' first file-based file <laughs> yeah, recorder. File-based, yeah. And... You know, everybody at the time, they, they called them nonlinear recorders, you know, and uh, I mine think still they, has the 40 gig drive in it. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, that for, for a company, you know, kind of looking back on, on that history, that really changed where, where the company was going. Cause all of a sudden we weren't just a company that was being used by ENG and news and, you know, uh, you know, direct to camera applications. We're now being used in double system environments. We were starting to show up in drama. We were starting to show up in, in, uh, you know, episodic TV and documentary style production. Yeah, and I and I, it felt like that. I mean, obviously, culminated in the seven eighty eight. So the uh, you know where it just felt like you were the, a lot of these products were built like a tank. Like, how did you approach that? Like, like where did that come from? Because a lot of the products around it didn't feel like they just didn't feel as solid, you know, as as what sound devices did. And what was that a very conscious decision about how you you know how you built them built the uh, recorders? Yeah, you know, we uh, you know Matt Anderson was. Uh, the designer of all the products, I think, up until the 442, the first, the first few. And then Libby started working on the mechanical design of some of those. And our inspiration came from actually Electrosonics at the time. Electrosonics was doing this, you know, powder-coated chassis, you know, machined, incredibly durable. And we wanted to do a product that was in that similar class of durability because we were going to the same use case. So we took inspiration from that, uh, you know, and and Matt designed the, you know, the kind of the UI and, and the strategy on the products and Libby did some of the execution of it. And, uh, you know, those those products, you know, kind of started our heritage of that really, you know, durable, uh, you know, and it actually started the look with the golf tees on the side with the 442. What is the... Uh how have you, over the last 20 years, how have you seen the sound recording industry change? In, in many ways, things have changed dramatically, but fundamentally, the application is, is unchanged. The people element of it are still the most critical. When you're, when you're going to a, a project and you're a production sound mixer, the reason you get the job is because you have a relationship with the with the production, with the producers, the directors. You're bringing them your skills. As as an equipment manufacturer, as as the manufacturer, those are the tools, and you're constantly adapting and changing your tools based on the technology. But really, from an industry, yeah, the technology is you know dramatically different from when sound devices first started. It was Still analog tape. There was digital tape at the time, and then that tra- transitioned to file-based recording, and you know, so that was a, a fundamental change. I think as time has gone on, the number of tracks continues to increase, uh, the routing continues to expand, and you know, now we're seeing you know more and more adoption of wireless and wireless technology for you know, in, in replacing that perfectly good fifteen-dollar XLR cable with a you know, a, a wireless link. So those, th- those are changing, but fundamentally what you do as a production mixer, that doesn't change. 
can you give us a little input on, on you know, so in 2020, during the beginning of COVID, it seemed like the sound industry kind of had a heart attack. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it just, it just, it just like one giant, like we still can't buy QL1s, you know? And so, so the, uh, what, what happened? What happened? Well, there? you know, I can speak to it a little bit from the Hankscraft perspective. So what, what I do right now is uh, I'm uh, managing Hankscraft Incorporated. Hankscraft is a contract manufacturer and we've got numerous uh, groups. We've got a manufacturing group in Suzhou, China. So we have our own manufacturing facility there. Uh, we we build a variety of different technology types. Um, some of them are electronic, some of them are mechanical. And whether it was sound devices or Hankscraft, 2020 significantly changed the whole supply chain. So supply chain and its pressures have have really defined the economy from a macro standpoint from 2020 to now. And you see that being driven, uh, you know, in every segment, whether it's, uh, you know, consumer products, whether it's, you know, foodstuffs, uh, you know, so as a manufacturer in 2020, you know, sound devices like everyone was directly impacted by supply chain disruption, particularly in semiconductors. And that you saw that across the board and the audio industry is, uses some very special semiconductors and very unique semiconductors. And when those go away, you're single sourced on a, on a particular part that goes away, that's going to impact your ability to produce a product. One, one piece part, not there, you can't, you can't build. And, you know, we, uh, you know, sound devices continue to do an incredible job of substituting material, uh, redesigning, spinning circuit boards, you know, I, I spoke with numerous peers. They were in the same mode. And instead of looking forward on new product designs, many companies were looking back on their existing library of products and simply having to iterate so that they could substitute material so that they can continue to produce. Yeah, yeah. Got a bunch of questions stacking up. Let's go ahead to the first question. Our first one comes from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. <laughs> Simple. How does Noise Assist work? Noise Assist, uh, you know, that's uh, ad it is a adaptive algorithm that is listening to the signal that's coming in, interpreting it, and listening and deciding what is steady state noise, what is signal, and then it's using you know signal processing and lots of math in order to interpret that. Uh, it's it's a process that. You know, I can't speak specifically on how it is is done. That's a actually a good question for uh, you know the folks at Sound Devices right now. But um, it it required a lot of development, a lot of listening in order to tune the algorithm to make it work and be functional for speech. So it's really designed for speech type signals versus music type signals and such. Hey, go, ahead, Jeff. I'm curious if there was ever even any discussion or thought to um, to offering it as a uh, plug-in uh, versus, you know, keeping it uh, locked to the hardware. You know, uh, I think a lot of things were explored to see if that was valid. There's a pretty rich environment of single-ended noise reduction tools for, uh, you know, for, that are you know, DAW-based, and those are running on a different kind of hardware architecture. They oftentimes have the luxury of excess clock. They may not necessarily be in real time, 
So one of the things that Noise Assist was designed from the inception was a real-time environment. So it really is, um, you know, introduces very little latency in the signal from input to process to out. Next question. Ike Cochran, Seattle, Washington, says, how did your time at Shure impact the creation of sound devices? I think it was a, a direct correlation between being at Shure, being, uh, you know, being inspired by what Shure was doing, and at a time in our collective lives, me and my co-founders, that we could take that risk. You know, when you're 30 years old, 29 years old, that's the time where you've got enough knowledge or you think you have enough knowledge and you can go and start off on your own and, and do something. And if it failed, if it blew up in our faces, we likely could be hired somewhere else. We, we likely could find a, a job somewhere else. But uh, it, it, was a, it was really nothing that was... We, we left because we wanted to try do our own thing. We had a great respect for where we came from. We wanted to do our own thing. Next question. Ike Potter in Hanover, Germany is up next. He says, only one instance of noise assist can be installed on the SD Mix Pre 2 series of recorders. Can this limitation be removed by firmware updates in the future, or is it a hardware-based limitation? You know, that's... Uh, I know the Mix Pre architecture is quite powerful. I know the 8 series architecture is quite powerful. And, you know, exactly how and where those are going for, for new features and such, that's a, a good question for sound devices. I do want to qualify that, you know, I, uh, you know, as one of the co-founders of the company in 2021, I made the decision to exit the company. So I am no longer part of sound devices. That's why, you know, when you see John Tatoulis, uh, you know, Hank's Craft Inc. Um, so many of these questions that are sound devices specific, those I'm going to refer back to my friends over at Sound Devices to ask if there's something that, you know, I, I want to be very careful and respect where the company is, where Sound Devices is, and, and how they choose to run their business. Next question. Uh, well, uh, you're going to get a couple of them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan Fischer Wurzberg is back. Is there any chance that the USB Pre 2 will be updated anytime soon? Does the company even think about that brick? And then yeah. a smile emoji. Yeah, that again, you know, that, that's a great question for the sound devices folks to see, you know, <laughs> we'll what get them. we'll get them on. All I, all I do know is that, you know, they are not sitting on their hands. They are always designing new stuff. They have, they have a great relationship with a, with a fantastic parent that has lots of resources. The company has incredibly smart folks. Uh, you know, my former business partner, Matt, continues to run the business. He's the one that designed the MP1. He's the, you know, he's, he, he's no doubt listening to this and saying, yeah, we're, of course we're designing new stuff. The, the, I have to say, when you, when you talked about production people being resistant to change, I still have a small pile of, of USB pre-2s. And when someone says, <laughs> how do you get audio out of a computer? I'm like, USB pre-2. You know, like, like that's, you know, like that's how we, that's how we get audio out of a computer. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, um, uh, I think a lot of us, um, uh, you know, are very resistant because it's just, that, that's another one of those kind of classic pieces of hardware that, that uh, was just, or is just just rock solid 
Um, you know, there's no, there's nothing that crashes. There's little dip switches. There's, you know, things that just, and it just works, you know? So it's anyway, it's an incredible piece of machinery. Uh, next question. Michael Vosbien in Woodstock, Georgia. What's the difference between noise suppression and a noise gate? Well, a noise gate is going to be a threshold-based tool. And a noise suppression is often adaptive. And when, when you're setting up a, an audio chain, a noise gate is relevant for certain types of signals where you have a defined threshold. Maybe it's going to be music-oriented, or if you've got somebody that is very consistent subject to microphone distance in a speech context, but that's not reality all the time. So that's where these adaptive noise reduction algorithms, they're constantly looking and evaluating what the signal level is of the entire signal, and then they're making determinations on, on that. Uh, you know, noise suppression is also, uh, you know, looking at the full spectrum, maybe changing the, uh, you know, how it's approaching the signal from leaving audio signals, speech grade signals through and maybe reducing the, you know, the, the out of bandwidth kind of signal. So a noise gate is oftentimes just, you know, kind of a on or off switch or attenuation switch. Noise reduction tends to be a little bit more intelligent. Next question. Next one comes from Stefan Fischer again in Wurzburg, Germany. He says, how does a company like yours organize its R&D? Does an R&D team work on one or two projects at a time and then completely switch to another field or product? Or do they work on all the fields all the time? I can't speak on how Sound Devices approaches things now, but uh, I know from our engineering team here, we're constantly working on different projects. So we have uh, you know, some folks that are dedicated to a specific project, and then we have other folks that are cross-functional and work across different projects. And how does that, and how does it, how does the process begin? Like, so is it, we have a meeting, like, do, does it come out with someone gets an aha moment, says this is a product that's missing, or does a, or do, or do you look at a market and decide this is a market that we want to impact? How does that usually, how's the inception usually lead to that R&D? When I was in high school, I had a band called The Original Thoughts. And we uh, we had that name very specifically because we were, you know, we were in high school. We thought we were just so clever because we were saying, you know, nothing is original. So we're going to call ourselves The Original Thoughts. So in, in a way, a lot of things, a lot of times you're building on somebody else's, uh, you know, inspiration or ideas. And you're constantly having a conversation with customers. One of the one of the founding principles when we began Sound Devices was to listen to the customers and bring them as part of the conversation. It was also a requirement because we were a little company and we needed to differentiate. You know, back in back at Sure in the in the '90s, Sure had a engineering department, they had a sales department, they had representative sales folks, they had product management people, and the the customer was really not part of that equation that much. When we started Sound Devices, we wanted to make sure that the customer's voice was very much infused in the product. And and so we built these direct relationships. You know, I've known Courtney for a long time. He's one of those early customers. And that was built with a, a personal relationship to know what the customer does, how they do it, what is important to them, uh, you know, to the point of knowing this is what their budget is for gear. This is how they use it. This is how long they keep it. 
this is how they finance it. All those are important to kind of look at what you're designing and, and how you're going to present that to the customer. Next question. Paul Buchan in uh, Columbus, Ohio. For, as a longtime consumer of sound devices products, one of the things I've always appreciated is the support team excuse me, and customer-centric mindset from them and seemingly the entire rest of the company. Was that culture hard to create and maintain? It was not hard to create because it was... It, it started at the inception of the company. And, you know, that that was one of the principles, having that relationship with the customer, having the uh, having somebody answering the phone. These were all things that were kind of started as the DNA of the company. And, you know, I, I can't see them necessarily changing that in the future. You know, they're they, they likely will continue to perpetu perpetuate some of those things that we started early on. But having having the relationship with the customer directly and that customer service element of it bringing the consultative approach you know oftentimes somebody would ask a question in customer service and you know i i was the customer service person for the first you know number of years at sound devices and i may not we may not necessarily have had the product for their application but we wouldn't ever say well you know you can shoehorn one of these in this application we would refer them to, you know, what may have been a competitor at the time or, you know, a future competitor, knowing full well that at some point we may have a product that satisfies that application. But that relationship and that trust that was built between the company and customer, th that is so important. And that's, you know, w whether it's in that context, whether it's us and our customers here as a contract manufacturer and the and the brands that we work with, that is that is essential, in my yeah. opinion. I think that people oftentimes think about it's their product or the content or whatever, and it really is always about that community. You know that the, the community that makes that happen. And I always thought I always knew John was doing something right because we'd go to like a, I remember we went to NAB, and there was a there's a sound recordists. Uh, it's like a dinner or a, or a get together or whatever. And I'm used to, when I go to NAB, I mean, I get stopped a lot, <laughs> you know, like, well, I'm because I'm on these shows and, uh, and, and, and we get there and John is the rock star. <laughs> like, like everybody had to walk over and say hi to John. And, and I, but what I saw with that is, um, where I'm just kind of sitting in the background and everyone's, uh, you know, uh, wants to talk to John is that is not something that you get by marketing or anything else that get, they get that because he's talking to all of them, you know, and he's, and he's having conversations and, and, uh, and it was, there was definitely something I learned about that and just watching that of, you know, I remember that night was watching that and just going, that's a company that's really embedded in the, in the community that they're serving, you know, is, is that when someone can just walk in and everyone wants to talk to them and it's, they're not doing heavy marketing. They don't have a big YouTube channel or whatever. They just, everybody knows who John is you know, because they've well, all, yeah, they've all had conversations it, with him. And I know sound devices continues that. I mean, they've got s some fantastic folks on board and uh, you know, they've got Gary, on wireless, they got Paul yeah. and the recorders, uh, you know, yeah. Matt's running the company. I mean, these are folks that have been around for a long time, have great relationships with customers. And it's, it's wonderful to see that, you know, I, I actually pass sound devices almost every day when I come up to my office here at Hankscraft and, and everybody, every time I was like, I'm rooting for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love. I get. We get to have. Um, yeah, we get to have conversations with Paul every once in a while, and and Gary, and it's just such a fountain of knowledge. Gary's on next week, so so, so anyway, so the uh, uh, just incredible fountains of knowledge, and so it's it's a lot. It's really a lot of fun. All right, next yeah. question. Mitchell Hill, Wilmington, Delaware, here on the panel. What's the story of the PIX 240 development? Good, Mitchell. Do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I think that what was interesting is, uh, first of all, a big fan of your work, John. Uh, and, of course, what you did at Sound Devices. When I saw that device, the PIX 240 come out, I was thinking, hmm, here's a company that has an excellent reputation in audio. Can they do it in video? And it was just a no-brainer. I said, I like that device. It makes a lot of sense. It has a lot of thought going into it and uh, well-designed. I'm real curious why they've decided they want to step into video now and apply their same philosophies. Hmm. The, uh, I guess we, at the time, were thinking, all right, we have this 788T. We have this engine that's doing recording. Signals are coming into it. They're digital signals. Well, now all these video signals are essentially digital signals. They happen to have a whole lot more bandwidth. They happen to be a whole lot higher data rate. Yeah, we can, we can record that as well. And we started to look at it, and we looked at some of the codecs at the time and realized, all right, we can implement this. We can, we can come up with a product. And we can add the sound component to it, the, you know, the, the quality of audio performance, all the tools, the time code, and all those things that we're already experts in you know, with our heritage in the audio recorders. And then we, we developed this product, went to NAB, and it, it was interesting that NAB was, was quite fun because the first day, the first half of the show was a little quiet, uh, and then all of a sudden a camera op would, would hear something from their sound mixer who was at the sound devices booth. Hey, you camera op, I work with you. You should go over and check out what sound device is doing with the PIX240. And, you know, we quickly had, you know, kind of a, this swarm of folks coming to take a look at the PIX240. And it was a very, uh, you know, for us at the time, it was very exciting to see that, all right, yeah, we can extend what we do and offer into these other markets. And mo like most products that uh, you guys developed and made, it still continues to serve me. I had my Neve uh, preamp die on me uh, a couple of weeks ago. I used the 240 preamp, and it worked just marvelously there. Good, Courtney. Yeah, I still have my PIX 242, too. Uh, I was wondering, uh, you know, you split off uh, uh, sound devices to a separate company just to handle video recording, video devices for a while there, and then you decided to abandon that market. Uh, and, of course, it spawned uh, several great audio recorders, too, like the 970, which was, I think, originally a video recorder and audio recorder. And it became a pretty uh, commonly used audio recorder in a lot of uh, Hollywood movies. Uh, but then uh, that's been discontinued as well. Uh, what was the decision to abandon the uh, video recorder market and concentrate on sound? Because that happened while you were there. Yeah, if you look at the, the current offering and some of the new products... Uh, there's some incredibly exciting things that they've introduced. Uh, and, you know, when I was there, we had acquired Audio Limited and recognized that the, the wireless space has so much, uh, you know, significance relative in its juxtaposition to the recorders. And, uh, you know, so that was, you, you know, you kind of look at those and you, you say, ah, well, maybe that's the direction that they're going. Yeah, the 
I mean, I think that the thing that made the 240 different and, uh, and a lot of the other was the audio. This is the funny thing is, is that the, the, the video recorders now still have no real audio. <laughs> you, know, like they, they, you know, like that's the, I mean, they, they have, they have, they might have some inputs and so on and so forth. But what made, I know that for us, you know, we, I probably at one point had probably 15, uh, 240s. Um, and, uh, and they were going out into kits. I mean, sometimes we have eight or nine of them in one place. But the thing was, is that we had audio routing and we had great preamps and we had, you know, and we could route things in and out of it. You know, we, again, we were using all of the tool, all the audio tools. I mean, anything could record the video, but being able to take um, two mics in and record a four tracks with, so I could take the output of my computer that's going HDMI into it and then add the mics to that, you know, were all those things that we, that we used really heavily. And I think that that was the thing that made it, uh, that made it different, you know, than, than I, I was what also, everybody else was doing. You know, around that time with the PIX240, I was of the mind, and I was completely wrong, that we would see double system sound really go away. Because now we had the ability to record digital picture, digital audio, N number of tracks of audio, X number of streams of video as these bandwidths mm -hmm. go up. It can be in one spot. There's no technological reason why it can't be in one spot. Right. And when we came out with the, uh, the, the PIX260, there was a little bit of a pushback from some of the production worlds saying, you know, we kind of don't want your chocolate and our peanut butter over here. And we want to keep the audio department and the video department separate. And, you know, I... I you know, just in my mind, I'm thinking, why? That just makes so much more sense to have it in one spot. You can have all your material. Uh, you know, the Wranglers got a much easier job. But we recognized that there's there's very good reasons why you continue to want to have the sound department and the picture department as separate worlds concentrating on their own thing. You know, if you think about it, if you ever see a, a camera op listening to audio while he's framing a, a picture you know that their, their brain is being divided. Are they listening to sound? Are they listening to actually what's really going on? Are they looking what's out just outside a frame, trying to figure things out? And you recognize, you know, very few humans can figure those two worlds out at the same time. If you're in your headphones, that's one thing. If you're in your viewfinder, that's a different thing. And they are separate. Yeah, they, they're separate. I think that the thing is from a broadcast perspective, they're having them together makes a lot of sense. So for us, having a bunch yeah. of 260s, because we had stacks of 260s as well, having those 260s in there and saying, oh, I can just throw a whole bunch of channels at that as well as have my video and I can have all of my show channels, you know, and then when it leaves, it's, when it's recorded, it's all all in one place. Back back to what you were saying. So I think that in the yeah. film industry, it didn't make as much sense. In the broadcast industry, it was, or in our broadcasts in any way, it was, it was like, it was, it was great. <laughs> so, so it's funny. I was a Twit, and Twit has, you know, they're still using, uh, they're still using some of the two sixties. And I was like, oh, I remember when those, when I had those, and they were like, yeah, you sold them to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, right, I remember. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael is up next with how do you like to involve the user base in the product development process? Do you prefer having a trusted cabinet of users that you bounce ideas off, or do you prefer a formal beta testing program? I think all companies approach things differently. And one of the things we discovered when we did the 744T beta was we put out some product and attempted to get some input from folks in terms of the unit's behavior. And what we ended up getting from that 
beta test was less, oh, if I am in this menu and if I do this, I get this behavior and this, I'm not expecting this. What we ended up getting in a lot of those formal beta tests was really feature requests. And, you know, a manufacturer has to, have to you know, you got to, you actually have to test. So, uh, you know, a lot of companies have put a lot of energy to test their products in-house. And, you know, the, the beta process may be a confirmation of, of some things, but, um, you know, I think every company does that differently. And, you know, in, in our earliest days, uh, you know, at Sound Devices, we recognized that that beta process, you know, customers thought they were really being helpful by introducing, oh, you know, we can have, what about this feature, this feature, this feature, whereas we were really truly looking f to test so that we could qualify and make sure that, you know, the, the existing feature set was, was valid. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach, Florida, here on the panel. How close are the Hanks Crafts POP displays to sound beaming isolated audio messaging to pedestrians' ears like in the movies? <laughs> You know, Hanks Crafts looked at the POP world for a long time. In fact, I've got a, uh, this is a brochure from 19, I think 1962 on a, on a motor that was designed for the POP displays. And they've looked at a, a variety of technologies for, uh, you know, to, to present POP. The POP has evolved these days into more of a, you know, digital signage. There used to be, uh, you know, physical displays in stores and things like that. And the, Hanks Craft did a lot of motion uh, for those. But now we've seen that evolve more into digital signage. And so we've done some of the digital signage. Um, and the company's looked at a variety of different technologies. And, uh, you know, whether there's somebody present in front of the display, uh, you know, to activate certain things. So there's there's been a variety of of investigations, and it all depends on what the customer is looking for. Next question. Next one comes to us from Guy Cochran in Seattle, Washington. The guy says, what's so great about Zaxcom? I think Zaxcom is a, you know, an innovative company. They've got some very unique products in the market. They uh, you know, arguably were the first file-based recorder, uh, portable file-based recorder for production with their, with their Diva. So they're They've innovated in a lot of ways, and the customers that are, you know, in the Zaxcom universe, and it, it tends to be you're kind of in the universe because many of their products are work in cooperation with their other products, and they've got their own, uh, you know, topology to control their wireless, control their recorders, and that all kind of works in cooperation. And so folks that are in that Zaxcom universe, they, they gain the benefits of all that integration. And I think that's that's what people are looking for when they see the Zaxcom stuff. They they like all of those things working in cooperation. Next question. Juan C. Robles in Mexico City. Mexico says, knowing what you know now, would you do something differently? You know, um, sure. You, you, I think you can short-circuit a lot of things. You know, I, I liken it to you got to go from A to Z in the alphabet, but you kind of have to go through all the letters in the alphabet to get there. You can go pretty quick if you know the steps that are required to get to the end of the alphabet. So you can short circuit a lot of things. Uh, you know, having, you know, 
started a company from you know inception to uh, you know a, a brand that's well respected in the in the industry. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we failed at, but I would say the things that were were the failures were probably the most important lessons for the company, and those are the kinds of things that if you take advantage of those lessons and you don't repeat them, you build upon things, then you can survive. Um, I, I don't want to go back to an environment where, you know, pounding our heads against the wall for the first five years. Uh, you know, that startup environment is, it's a tough environment. Uh, I, I work and mentor a lot of new businesses in the Madison, Wisconsin area, and I kind of see them going through that process and watching it from afar is, is, is fun. And you can, you know, kind of walk through that path with them, but you know, I'm not in a position to want to do that again. Next question. Courtney Gooden in Hollywood here on the panel. Did Hanks Craft as a contract manufacturer ever handle production of Sound Devices products? Well, Hanks Craft and Sound Devices had a relationship that started from when the company first began in, Sound Devices first began in 98. And we moved our facility and we leased our facility out of Hanks Craft's space. So right above my office here was where I used to sit uh, when Sound Devices was here. And so we we took advantage of Sound of, uh, of Hanks Craft's, uh, you know, floor space. Uh, in the early days, we shared a computer system with them. We, you know, had a separate database on their computer system. So we, we shared a few things. And as a startup company, that allowed us to get to market faster. And over time, Sound Devices continued to, you know, extract itself from from that relationship. Hey, Courtney, you were going to add something? Yeah, I see. And another question I had is kind of a follow-up is Hank's Craft. Uh, do they do, when somebody comes to Hank's Craft uh, who wants Hank's Craft to, to produce a device, let's say, do they come with a prototype? And does Hank's Craft do the, any of the engineering to make that prototype viable as a production product to, to work on a production line? Is that one of the things you do? It is, and it's going to be dependent on the the customer. Some customers have fully formed designs, and they're ready to go, and they feel it's ready to go for production. Then our engineers get involved. We make sure that it's designed for manufacturability and the processes that we have. And so that's uh, that's part of it. And then there's other companies that are looking for us to help them innovate. So they come and say, we want to do this. Uh, we kind of have an idea for this. Can you help us flesh that out? And so then we'll help them bring that product to market. We'll help them design the product, uh, you know, essentially working as a work for hire. So it's their intellectual property. We're in a work for hire basis. So they can come to you with an, uh, a patented idea, but not a working prototype. And you guys can do the engineering to make it a reality. Yep. We do some of that. Next question. Jeff Cohen, Miami Beach. Any thoughts on the future benefits of AI in audio hardware and software? I'm I'm pretty blown away to hear the results of some of these artificial voices. And I can imagine where a, a world where we now have, uh, you know, ADR or snippets of ADR done with a synthesized voice where somebody in production I just need a couple lines here and there, and I already have this voice print of all the production tracks. I can go in there and I can do AI-based ADR. So I can see that. That's 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 a world that 
I could see is, uh, you know, is feasible in the next three to four years. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, just even taking the existing, you know, uh, audio from the scene and just improving it using the same voice actor and not really doing and I was talking to somebody in LA about this and they were talking about just pulling the the voice out from the original scene using the the model that they have of that person's voice to just make it more intelligible you know or to make it you know to bring yep. it or to separate it and let you do extra work on it so it sounds like it's more there but it's but it's still from the original recording um just anyway it's just a fascinating fascinating thing um, next question TJ Asher, Minneapolis. The tough question is any chance of bringing back the Hanks Crafts vaporizer? Such an iconic design. <laughs> we, uh, we still get inquiries for replacement motors from a device that we made in the 50s. And, uh, you know, I, you know my, my, yeah, my vaporizer motor on. just went out. Uh, years ago, when I w went to my in-laws, when my children were very small, my in-laws brought out the humidifier because one of my kids had a had a cold and it was the iconic Hankscraft this circular vaporizer that just made all it, actually it's it's not a vaporizer it should be a white noise generator we can <laughs> we should renew this and sell it as a uh, you know as a is a background sound oh white noise generator. <laughs> I just realized that we had one when I grew up. I, I didn't even realize that that was the same. I just did a search for it. I was like, what is the vaporizer? And I was like, oh, that's the one we all had when we were kids. Yeah. That's funny. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. What are the pros and cons of customers being married to a brand? I think there's a benefit to investing in a brand if the brand is investing back in its customers. And I, I think you always have to be conscious that you've got to look from your customer perspective, what works for me? And you might compromise if you are solely in one brand world and this is, you know, you're looking at it from one specific brand. And you've got to make that decision if if that's okay with you. I think there's some benefits to you know, a customer providing loyalty to the manufacturers. I think some of the manufacturers really, really reciprocate with that. But I do think, you know, especially a professional, a professional always needs to look at their products as tools. These, these really are tools. And this tool may be the right tool for this application. This one's the right one for this application. You've got to choose your tools wisely. According to you, we're going to add something. Yeah, I was going to say, I, you know, I've been a fairly loyal customer of sound devices, and the reason I think for that, and a, and a lot of people are loyal to a certain brand, is the ability of that manufacturer that or that uh, uh, manufacturer of the device to uh, accommodate uh, requests from the users, and that's one thing I've always found sound devices. I always, you know, bent their ear on. You know, I was one of those you know, beta testers on the 744 and saying, well, you know, it would be great if it just did this. Can you rearrange <laughs> this? And and a lot of times they listen and that makes for improvements of products. And it, uh, you know, you eventually can work with the manufacturer to get things the way uh, you want them to be. You know, that's a really a great yeah. reason for brand, brand loyal. Next question. TJ Asher proving that everybody looks at backgrounds. What's on tap today after noticing the tap handles over John's left shoulder here in the shop? <laughs> One of the uh, one of the Hankscraft companies is a company called AJS in Random Lake, Wisconsin, just north of Milwaukee. Very fitting, and this is a manufacturer that 
makes custom crafted beer tap handles. We make about a half a million beer tap handles a year for a variety of brands. So whether it's uh, craft breweries or, uh, you know, big uh, international breweries, we make many, many beer tap handles. And uh, they're made out, out of ash. They're made out of maple. We go through a lot of wood, uh, a lot of paint, <laughs> a lot of varnish. All I'm saying is if, if I visit, I, I want to do a video like walkthrough of how a handle gets made. Because <laughs> I just found, does it, is it something you can kind of walk through the line and oh, see sure. yeah. different parts? Yeah, yeah you, you start off with the blanks and then you're walking through the CNC and some of them are lathe, some of them are, you know, then you go into, you know, the fittings and it's a fun process. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Could you see U.S. technology companies bringing more manufacturing back into the U.S. as it was many years ago? If not, what are the barriers to reshoring said manufacturing? In, in my short time here at Hankscraft, I've had three programs that have come to the company that are looking to begin their manufacturing in China and then transition that to the U.S., to our U.S. facility here. And that's an interesting thing. They, they want to, I think some of this is they want to de-risk from these big macro socioeconomic perceived risks of not producing in the U.S. Um, I, th I think the world is, is better if we are a global sourcing, uh, you know, less tariff, uh, you know, boundaries and, and walls world. I think if people are truly competing on a level playing field, all boats rise. That's not necessarily the case, and that probably will never truly be the case. But there is a a motivation for folks to bring things local. Yeah, absolutely. John, so great to have you here. Thanks, thanks so much for spending an hour with us. It's really, really fun. Wow, that was a quick hour. It was. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens when you're just doing Q and A. It, it, yeah. it just it just spins right by. Uh, so so thank you so much for your time. We can't. We'll probably try to drag you back on in, in about a year. See how sure. things are going. <laughs> so, Sounds good. That'd be good. Um, uh, thanks to all our producers for all the great questions that had this and uh, that filled up the hour. Uh, thanks to our panelists. Of course, can't do this without you. And so it's great to have you. Great answers in the first uh, and and questions in the, in the second hour. Uh, and uh, and a thanks to the amazing. A uh, group of volunteers putting this show together every day it takes a lot of people. You'll see the credits here in just a second. Uh, it's it is a uh, it's a huge number of people that are working on it all all week, you know, all day. It seems like, uh, you know, basically building all the back end pieces and then also running the show itself. So thank you for all the the unseen but very important work. Appreciate all of you. All right, uh, we've got. Uh, Got a great one tomorrow. We're talking about CES, and then the team from Zoom is going to be here on Friday. So, uh, so stay tuned for those uh, to answer your questions. So, start building those questions up, um, and uh, we'll now jump into after hours. Ninety-five thousand miles. We, we covered ninety-five thousand miles, one hundred fifty-three thousand kilometers. But most importantly, eight hundred and sixty-three bananas for scale. Wow, how many Pix240s is it? Pix240s, I think, I think <laughs> probably twice as many Pix240s as bananas. I think we'd have to test it, but on a standard, on a standardized banana, I think the Pix240 is about half the size, half the length. So I think that would probably be over 1.5 uh, billion Pix240s. And they have a better shelf life than a banana do. Yeah, the banana doesn't last nearly as long as the 240. My 240s, my 
240s don't turn brown. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs>